Okay. Into the uh, third part of the evening now. I hope you found your uh, conversation partner absolutely fascinating. The one thing you're not allowed to say is you found them more fascinating than our speaker. Um, you can say it to them but you can't say it to anybody else now I have lovely assistants at the back who are going to rove all you need to do is put your hand up and have a question at the ready so who would like to who would like to begin Um, Mims could could we uh, get a a, um, Sarah maybe you could pass pass along we could do a bit of pass the parcel there Um, and then we'll, we'll come to Giles afterwards as the second question if we could just hear Andrew yeah do you just gone part, uh, uh, just back back a bit Andrew go go at Mims go ahead Salam alaikum please excuse the English mm-hmm. accent um, I was immensely privileged in the eight, late 80s to live in Palestine Israel before they built the wall and um, I was really amazed as a Christian going out there that all the mosques most of the mosques were actively inviting Christians in to sit at the back and watch them pray. It was incredibly beautiful and moving. I was never evangelised to. They were just offering the sign. Um, I think that why most Westerners are so scared of the Quran is that they don't know it. Um, I think that all schools should take children to a mosque, and I think that all schools should teach the Quran as they teach the Bible. Because the more I've studied the Quran, the more I found that it just clarifies the Bible, makes it a lot clearer, a lot of the stories are more beautiful. There's actually a chapter about St. Mary. And as we're coming into Advent, I think the telling of the story in one of the surahs of the birth of Christ is actually more beautiful than the four Gospels we use. And I have found out recently that you are supposed to say, Jesus, blessed be on him. Thanks, Mims. I'm going to take take Giles as well, and then I'm going to invite Abdul Hakim to, to respond and say anything he'd like about education or how Christians can know come to know Islam better and and, uh, other such things. Charles. This was thanks to my neighbor who helped clarify this. Um, It was very moving at the end. Um, We went from the circumstances to something which seems so important, which is the erosion of spiritualism. I mean, forget the ism, spiritual values. If that's what you were saying on, on the Muslim side. And what can any of us do about it, um, whether we're Christians or Muslims? Mm-hmm. It seems so, seems so tragic, that. So we've got a question there, uh, uh, well, a, a point, point referring to, I guess, what Christians can learn from Muslims, but then we've got a contrasting point about internal problems within uh, spirituality within the Muslim world itself. I'm glad we began with those two important points, although I'm wondering if the, the, the point about the Quran actually clarifying some of the obscure parts of the Bible might be better addressed to the incumbent vicar of the parish rather than to myself. I hesitate to comment on, on that one. Uh, but yes, it, indeed, it is the case that uh, as, as Muslim proverb, man is the enemy of what he doesn't know. 
if we could only enter each other's sacred spaces and listen to the spirit uh, in those spaces and uh, recognize that 90% certainly what the monotheisms believe they actually hold in common. Uh, the doctrines, the list of virtues, uh, the the need for altruism and hospitality. Uh, The great stories of the Quran are uh, different but similar to the great stories of of the Bible. Most of of this sense of fear at the dark, unknowable, demonic other uh, would be eliminated. And it works on both both ways, I must say. There's plenty of people in the Middle East who could benefit from entering the places of worship of other communities and getting to know uh, their forms of worship and their, their belief better. There's uh, Islamophobia in the West, but there's also a lot of prejudice amongst Muslim communities because all they see of the West is the marines riding the tanks into Baghdad with the Ray-Bans and the missionaries and that's, that's the image that they get and that of course is, 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 is a caricature of what uh, most, uh, most Westerners are about so I'm grateful for that and I think the schools are making more of an effort now to try and reflect the reality of a multicultural society and some of the mosques I think are not always sufficiently geared up to dealing with large numbers of, of school children suddenly descend, descending on them. Um, I know it happens at the mosque in, in, in Cambridge and the Central Mosque in London every morning is showing around groups of school kids, but we certainly need to do more of that. Second question is also um, very, very germane, and I'm glad people were, were, were listening carefully. It's a kind of spiritual crisis. I was speaking about the fact that the law, the ethical code, can take us so, only so far in in determining the boundary between legitimate and illegitimate force, and that ultimately it has to be a disposition of the soul that makes us hold back. Uh, When we are most tested is when we have our backs against the wall, uh, and that is when we are tempted to use um, instruments of violence that we may subsequently regret. Personally, I believe that very many people here regret the fact that in the the terror and fear and insecurity of the 1940s, we decided that a third of the national economy should be dedicated to flattening the civilian areas of of Central Europe. I think we feel a bit uncomfortable about that. But that was the decision that we took in the fear and terror of the moment. Religion, if it's worth having, has to enable us to overcome that fear and insecurity and to trust God and to trust in his plans for humanity and not to look at what seems to be the secular calculus of cause and effect and risk at the moment, but have trust in God and confidently to adhere to what is evidently morally right rather than to erode or break boundaries and to reach for weapons um, that, that are clearly unethical. And, and to that I would add a further point that I wanted to work into my uh, talk but wasn't really able to, which is that the West also is developing some some weapons uh, from a position of strength, not from a position of being terrified in a refugee camp or in a bombed country, but from a position of strength that uh, we all need to be campaigning very seriously against. And this church in particular has this wonderful, long-standing, honourable tradition of campaigning for, for such causes. It's not just about cluster munitions and landmines, but the new generation of Pentagon weaponry, land drones, for instance, the idea that just as air warfare and assassination from the skies has been automated, and the head of the RAF college was telling me, in 20 years' time, we won't have manned fighter planes. It'll all be done through drones. And synthetic ethics will determine when they actually strike or not. Because an algorithm in the drone can tell whether something's likely to be a military or civilian target. 
And that's the way things are now going. And they're going to use it for uh, tanks. So you'll have whole areas of the globe where they don't put any boots on the ground at all, but just send in machines, and the conflicts are going to be automated. And that clearly is extremely disturbing. Uh, and that is, again, a point at which religious leaders need to be standing up and saying, we know these are difficult situations, but let's not panic. Let's try and place our trust in God and keep our cool ethically and not turn into a form of the barbarism that we affect to despise. Thank you. Um, we've, got, we've got gentlemen on the front, two gentlemen on the front row. Why don't we take your two questions to, together, if we, if we may? Um, do, you think, do you think we're unmindful of the, um, the divine providence that lies behind international events? Uh, what I mean by that is if you look through in, in history, if you look at the, the sack of Babylon during the Babylonian cap- captiv- captivity when um, King Nebuchadnezzar, he um, basically, you had Prophet Daniel and his companions that were, that were driven to ba- Babylon. Um, I'm just wondering if the, it's the iniquity of the, of the nations that leads to those events occurring and it's a repeat of history basically. The iniquity of the of the um, Islamic lands has led to this, this these events from unfolding, mm-hmm. or unfolding. Okay, thank you. And do you want to pass to your neighbour? Thank you. Um, r- recently, uh, there was a program on television uh, on the government's actual or proposed de-radicalisation program. Um, I, I simply want to ask you: um, Have you been? Invited to get involved in that program. Um, if not, if, if you were, um, assuming that you were, uh, what, what are your views on, on this? Do you know enough about the program to be able to comment on it? Okay, we've got two, again, very contrasting questions. One, a broad theological question, making a comparison with the period of the exile uh, as narrated uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, uh, about whether there is a sense of God's judgment and of God, uh, about people having, having, in a sense, brought uh, suffering upon themselves through their own sin. Uh, and then a, a second question about the government's de-radicalization uh, cam- campaign and whether our speaker and whether our speaker has had any involvement in that campaign. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's really a, uh, it's, it's about the level of the microphone yep. uh, as opposed to simply the level of the speaker. Yeah, these are, again, germane questions. Clearly, the Quran, like the Bible, narrates significant events of history and invites us to discern the pattern of God's operation in those events. It's an entirely theologically legitimate exercise to try and do the same with current events. Uh, my capacity to discern the divine purposes in the current global meltdown, uh, I'm afraid, not up to the task. Um, it may well be that individual communities and even nations are being punished because of turning aside from God in some kind of classical sense. I can't exclude that possibility. But so many innocent people, in fact, usually it's the innocent people who are suffering most, in places like Syria, Iraq, Somalia, wherever, is the innocent who are suffering, that to see it simply as divine vengeance for them having put up with a miserable regime for decades, I find a little bit hard to swallow. 
So I'd be more or less agnostic on that in terms of my capacity to read the events. Um, At Sur al Kaf, um, when um, Hazrat Musa meets uh, Kidr and they go on this journey, and mm-hmm. Kidr actually um, slays the young boy who, in first appearance, would appear innocent, but mm-hmm. there is divine wisdom behind that, even. So Okay. We can never yes, know what, I, I God's, what God's, what God's grand plan is or what his judgment is. Yes, but the point of the story is also that even Moses couldn't figure out what the divine wisdom was in the actions of his mysterious companion. So I, I feel a little bit less guilty about not being able to understand the headlines. If that's a scriptural text, it's a relief. Uh, the other question, um, have I myself been involved in the government's various counter-radicalization schemes? No. Occasionally they try and contact me. Occasionally I talk to them, but I've never allowed myself to be drawn into that kind of web, which is a world that I don't fully understand. And I think that usually government, through probably no fault of its own, disposes of instruments that are too blunt to deal with things that are really a subtle error in the soul or in theology. It's, it's, I don't know when the British government last engaged seriously with, with theology, but it was probably the time of the Gordon riots or something. <laughs> not what they're trained to do. And if they don't understand their own theology, I think they're not going to make a very good fist of dealing with Islamic theological aberration. So my advice to them generally would be back off and to let the Muslim community try and sort this out. At the moment, it's not very good at doing that. But my fear is that most government interventions will do more harm than good. Thank you for that um, um, very direct response. Uh, okay, let's let's move towards towards the back. We've got one on the very back row, and then we've got an, uh, which is an Andrew's court, I think, or it was going to be. And then Andrew, if you could move to the to the next furthest back on Sarah's side, uh, that would be great. We'll take the one on the back row first. Hello, good evening. We've heard an immense amount about what is wrong with the world and absolutely appalling and utterly depressing, Um, so much so that I felt like being sick through most of it. What, in your view, with your brilliance, in language and in thought and understanding, where can God help us in this extremely depressing situation which you have Um, the opposite of illuminated for us so eloquently and depressingly. I mean, God help us. Thank you. Really? And you started by... by, um, Sorry, I've forgotten your name, the vicar, by saying that Christians perceived sex and lovemaking to be um, the product of the fall. It's complete rubbish. Uh, I was quoting Christians the Independent. <laughs> perceive love as coming from God. Well, uh, I will take, we'll take the so first part of the question. I would like to know, in a series dedicated to the creation of peace in the world between peoples, where you see that coming at all, in any sense, because you just leave one with a feeling of utter despair if one had sort of taken what you said as being truthful or right, which I don't. 
and I have to say that in all conscience before leaving, where is the positive side of this evening? Where is love? Where is humour? And where is life? And where is reconciliation and peace? Thank you. Okay, thank you for your question. And if we could take the, the, uh, the second questioner as well, please. I think you delineated between sort of what Wahhabism and classical Islam by the type of exegesis that they engage in. Sorry. And that for you, classical Islam or a classical form of Islam that you sort of portrayed as being the better, the more proper Islam, this comes from the collected wisdom of Muslim exegetes throughout the ages. And you said that the modern extremist forms come from personal interpretations stripping away that collective wisdom in the tafsir. But do you not see or do you not think that perhaps within this movement of extremism whereby people are having a more personal idea of exegesis, there are in fact also the seeds for a gentler form of Islam that you also called for through a personal interpretation of the Quran? Well, we've got a, quite a complex question there, which I'm going to ask our speaker to uh, uh, to navigate. Uh, the, the, the the first question was a was a heartfelt plea for 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 hope and for a positive uh, presentation of of where God can help us in this crisis. Yes, I'm, I appreciate both of those questions, um, and I wish that I had been able to be more upbeat this evening. Uh, but when we're seeing daily image, images of people drowning in the, uh, the Adriatic and the Mediterranean, desperately trying to escape whole countries that have been ravaged, uh, I didn't really want to strike a, a false note. This is a, a somber situation that the world is confronting. But of course, you're right, there is hope. And the reality is that behind the headlines, most believers uh, are engaged in things that are profoundly constructive. Uh, when I lived in the Middle East, my experience of what people were doing on the ground actively in their religion was not an attempt to create some kind of utopian religious totalitarian state. Most mosque-goers were committed to charitable work, to the free clinic that was part of the uh, mosque at the end of my road in Cairo, where you could go and get your kids sort of teeth sorted by, a, by a, a, a dentist for free at the end of the day. The extraordinary network, the infrastructure of charitable activities that happens thanks to religion throughout the third world, which is overwhelmingly thanks to the blessing of religion, not because of the, the, the regimes, which in most cases are poorly resourced and, and useless. Overwhelmingly, on my travels, I found that the story is an upbeat one both in terms of what the religions are doing and in terms of how they engage with each other. But the topic this evening was about religion and violence, and so I did choose to uh, speak perhaps rather darkly, and if that uh, caused a sort of cloud of, of, of depression to descend on the congregation, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But uh, it, these are uh, grave times. Second question, also interesting, uh, is it possible that in the current... Uh, enthusiasm for setting aside classical consensual models of reading the Muslim scriptures uh, in favour of a more personal direct interpretation, a kind of reformation Islam perhaps that as well as angry young men reaching for extreme forms of, of, of violence, there is the possibility for some form of more uh, gentle renewal in the tradition that perhaps would find it difficult to come out of the rather perhaps stultified uh, classical 
uh, exegesis or commentaries. That is indeed quite possible. Uh, my regret, however, is that overwhelmingly uh, the movements that are now sullying the honour of the religion in the world's headlines are coming out of that reformist tradition and not out of the traditionalist position. It may well be, as I tried to suggest, that eventually they will drink that cup to the bitter end and will use the same methodology to try and build something that is, that is more convivial and more humane rather than simply turning the scriptures into a kind of megaphone for their own outraged pride. But I don't think we have seen that yet. Okay, we've got, we've got, this always happens, doesn't it? You was just a couple of hands at the beginning and then suddenly, a, a, a two-thirds of the way through, you, the, the hands start, 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 uh, start appearing. So we've got, we've got one just here between the two pillars, uh, uh, just over there. And Sarah, if you'd like to take, take one uh, halfway down the aisle here, just on your side, um, we'll take those. We'll take yours uh, first, in, in light of the topic, I mean, obviously seeing that in the Middle East there is a lot of violence that is uh, motivated by some sort of religious zeal. My question is, in terms of values, what is really the difference between being prepared to die for Allah and being prepared to die for queen and country? Okay, would you like to go ahead with another question? Thank you. Okay. It is Thank now. You. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Could you possibly explain um, to uh, a, a school child um, the meaning of the following surah, um, which is 456? As for those who disbelieve our revelations, we shall expose them to the fire, and as often as their skins are consumed, we shall exchange them for fresh skins that they may taste the torment. And do you think that such surahs have an effect on radicalization of young Muslims who see a God who can be so cruel that why can't they be cruel as well whilst they're alive? Thank you very much. Okay, so we've got two questions there. One about whether dying for Allah and dying for queen and country are morally uh, to be differentiated from one another or are on the same level. And the second, uh, from a challenging text from the Quran, which, on the face of it, uh, seems to encourage a very radical response. Yeah, the first question, I suppose, is about um, martyrdom. If somebody dies for queen and country, are there, in some sense, a sort of secular martyr? Certainly, the war memorial in my Cambridgeshire village is dedicated to the martyrs of the village. We tend to assume that's a religious category, but often it's subsumed into a kind of nationalism. And if you wander down the road to the uh, guard's chapel, for instance, you'll see a very sort of strange interaction of religious and national ideas of self-sacrifice. Um, the two are not necessarily distinct. Um, in the Middle East, because the nation-states are in many cases artificial constructs left behind by the re retreating European colonial armies. Most of those boundaries were dreamt up in a smoke-filled room at the Treaty of Versailles and have no deep historical reality. Very often people will reach for religious or regional identity 
as something that they're prepared to lay down their lives for rather than a national identity which they see as a rather thin way of defining themselves. But, um, and also the religious martyrdom, of course, is in the assurance of eternal life, whereas dying for a flag uh, may not have that conviction. Uh, the other point, of course, is also germane. Um, the uh, monotheisms share the idea that, that in the afterlife there's not just the, the abode of delight but also hellfire. Um, certainly in my ancestral tradition there was a strong tradition of preaching on, on that, the place where there is uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, whether that leads people to violence, whether, for instance, those verses in the New Testament have a linear connection, say, to the Spanish Inquisition, I would find a little bit far-fetched. The fact is those same passages are read by Muslims across the spectrum, and overwhelmingly uh, we find that Muslims are not attracted to to radicalism. So uh, to suggest that there's a a link between God's vehemence towards sinners and tyrants in the afterlife and our our willingness to break the rules of war in in this world is is a little tenuous, I, I would feel. Hey, um, oh, where have all the hands gone? Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's, there's these these two uh, two just here on the end of uh, of the two pews near the front. Thank you. Um, I came here because um, I'm concerned about the rising level of um, uh, Muslim violence and antagonism to to Western values and. Um, I have spoken to some of my companions here tonight, and they're similarly concerned. Um, I've I've struggled to read the Quran. I have two copies at home Mm -hmm. and some of the Hadith, and I've been up to Regent's Park Mosque, and I've done my best to try to understand. Mm -hmm. But um, it would seem that some of the um, violence is coming from... Uh, these young men reading the Hadith and some of the Hadith are disputed and what I'd like to know is um, how, how, how can this be resolved if you, uh, since you have no head like the Pope to say, no authority mm-hmm. to say these are disputed these are the correct Hadith mm-hmm. um, so that what is being taught in the madrasas and what's being taught and discussed in the mosques um, are left to sort of bubble up into the local community and there's nobody there to actually um, sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. Have I? Okay. Okay, and then the, the next question is just two rows behind. Thank you. Uh, Tim, you focused very much in your presentation on the curse that has befallen Muslims and Islam. Um, and the topic was the pre- uh, topic of the presentation tonight was not just on the curse but also the promise. Um, what is the promise of Islam? What is the promise of the Muslim world? Um, if the curse is producing people like Bin Laden and others, is there a promise that might produce people like Mandela um, on mm-hmm. the Muslim world? Okay, so we've got a question about authority. Uh, uh, and and where do Muslims and others turn to, for authoritative voices within Islam, particularly in this country? I think, and and then we've got a question pushing you, I think, for a second time to uh, accentuate the uh, the promise side of the uh, um, the commission. 
Yeah, the question of how authority is mediated in Islam is an important one. Uh, classical Sunni Islam is insistent that uh, one cannot simply pick up the Quran and the Hadith and interpret them according to one's own lights. Uh, instead, it is the accumulated ijma or the consensus of the scholars of the community that uh, determines the correct interpretation. And they sift through the scriptures and they come up with their rulings, which are there in the classical texts of the religion. Uh, what is happening nowadays is that that traditional mechanism is being set aside and people are just going directly to the scriptures and interpreting them on the basis of, of ignorance rather than on the basis of centuries of debate and discussion and interaction with the real world. Uh, it's the same scriptures that the Muslims were reading 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you never heard of something like suicide bombing, for instance, in the Islamic world, which is an incredibly peaceful and, and pacific corner of the earth. The scriptures are the same. It's the fact that the scholars are no longer recognized, and Sunni Islam's very clear way of determining the correct interpretation of the scripture through this class, if you like, of informed, authorized scholars is being set aside by the radicals in favor of their own often anger-driven interpretations. And it's quite difficult for the classical consensus to know how to deal with that. If people are simply not accepting the basic rules of Sunni Islam, how do you actually bring them into line? Nobody has an answer to that. And the second question is, uh, again, about the promise. I guess I began by pointing out, because it's not about Islam, the that have the, the threatened the, prom, the curse and the promise, but about violence, the curse and the promise. That's what I'm speaking about. And at the beginning, I did talk about the sanctity of law, the possibility that the due execution of a penalty brings a certain closure and brings a certain healing, that even violence can be healing if it results in the closure of a door to, to tyranny. In 1939, we didn't all volunteer to become ambulance drivers. And if we had, this country would now be flying kind of swastikas everywhere. Pacifism is not a coherent response. So there is a promise that violence offers as well. Uh, and when duly mediated, again, by these structures of, of classical consensus, it does indeed result in, in a peaceful and ordered world. So, yes, I think the, the subject of the promise of violence is something that I began to talk about, even though... Um, as we've heard, the elephant in the room is current Islamist radical violence. It would have been a bit disappointing if people had left this evening without hearing something substantial about my sense of the roots of that as well. Well, I think we've heard... Um, thank you. We've heard uh, a quite uh, extraordinary um, collection of thoughts from Abdul Hakim this evening. We've and I, th I want, I want to, to conclude with that final answer because I think that crystallizes something that perhaps nobody who came here tonight was really expecting to hear um, because the, the standard format for these lectures <clears throat> is that the religious authority comes along and says, oh, no, 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 you've got my tradition completely wrong. Um, we're not people of violence. We are... We're people of peace. I don't know which scriptures you've been reading. You've been reading completely the wrong things. And all those passages that seem to mention violence in my scriptures, uh, well, they're not really mentioning violence. They're a metaphor or something like that. And, and, and if I've been guilty of doing a little bit of that in my own contribution, then, then I guess I have to put my hand up. Um, what we've heard from Abdul Hakim this evening is a very different 
uh, a different argument, which is to say that there is a legitimate place for controlled violence, particularly as a form of self-defense, uh, within Islam and within civil society, which is a, a, a brave and, a, and a, one might say a, a, a mature and honest uh, vision, not just for Islam, but for for our society. It's actually, I guess, how our society actually functions. Uh, Abdul Hakim has had the courage to come along and not say that we've all got Islam completely wrong, but to say that Islam, in its understanding of violence, particularly as self-defense, uh, has got a tremendous amount to offer, not just to, to Muslims, but to civil society in, in general. It, I have to say, it wasn't the argument I was expecting uh, to hear. I've learned a tremendous uh, amount from it. I've also uh, taken away and will reflect on uh, in the days to come uh, a very complex and nuanced account of what self-defense means. Um, particularly, actually, when it becomes reflexive and when it reflects back on, on Islam itself and how the actions of extremists, uh, particularly in the Middle East in recent years, have not been a very good form of self-defense for Islam because they have increased stereotypes, caricatures, and reactions from the West which have exacerbated uh, the problem that we're all facing and belongs to all of us in different ways. These, these again, are, are, I found tremendously thoughtful and stimulating arguments, and of course illustrated beautifully uh, from the Bosnian literature with which Abdul Hakim began and, and finished. So I'm, I'm immensely grateful uh, for not the lecture that I expected, but actually a much more interesting and challenging and stimulating lecture than I expected, and also the, the, the simple directness with which Abdul Hakim has responded to, to the questions. Uh, not a hint of defensiveness, uh, uh, and, 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 but also a, a, a sobriety about the, the, the challenge of the crisis that, that we're all facing, not simply Muslims are facing, but, but we're all facing in terms of this, this terrible violence, but also the degree of complicity, culpability, uh, and uh, the complexity of response that the West and particularly Christianity faces in relation to this violence. So we've covered a tremendous amount of territory uh, tonight, and I'm extremely uh, grateful to our speaker for, for leading it in that. Before I ask you to express your, your gratitude too, I would like to remind you of two things. First of all, well, three things actually. Uh, first of all, that if you'd like to help us cover the costs of this evening, there'll be an opportunity to do so on your way out, and you'll, we'd also be grateful for any feedback you're able to write on the little form that you were given when you came in. Secondly, a reminder that you're very welcome to join us for more lively conversation next door uh, for the next part of the evening. And, uh, and thirdly, to remind you that in two weeks' time, uh, the distinguished writer Karen Armstrong will be with us to conclude our series on the curse uh, and the promise. Having uh, expressed all of those, those details, I'd like you to join me uh, in thanking our speaker for a, a quite wonderful lecture. Thank you. <laughs>